Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Nigel Griswold, CEO and co-founder of Dynamo Metrics, and your host. Today, I'm joined by Pamela Weidman, Director of Housing and Neighborhood Services for the City of Charlotte, North Carolina. As Director, Pamela is responsible for oversight of the city's affordable housing efforts, including the Housing Trust Fund, Emergency Repair, Rehabilitation, Homelessness, and Down Payment Assistance Programs. Additionally, Pam is responsible for the city's code enforcement, Community Engagement Divisions, the Office of Equity, Mobility, and Immigrant Integration, and the CharMec 311 Call Center. Ms. Weidman has more than 25 years of local government experience. She is adept at forging creative solutions to government issues at the local level. Pamela was awarded the Master of Public Administration Alumna of the Year and received a Leadership in Black Excellence from her alma mater, the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. She was also nominated as a Women in Leadership Champion by the Charlotte Chapter of the Urban Land Institute, and she was recognized as one of the top 10 behind-the-scenes newsmakers by the Charlotte Business Journal in both 2017 and 2020. Pamela currently serves as a member of the International City County Management Association, the Urban Land Institute, and the National Forum for Black Public Administrators. She received her master's degree in public administration from UNC Charlotte and her bachelor's degree in business administration from Belmont Abbey College. Pamela is a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill's Institute of Government Municipal Administration Program and completed the senior executives in state and local government program and executive education program at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School. She completed the National Forum for Black Public Administrators Executive Leadership Institute Program designed to develop future assistant and city managers throughout the county. Our conversation covers the city of Charlotte's approach to affordable housing and how to leverage data for affordable housing strategies. And now my conversation with Pamela. Welcome everyone to Ahead of the Curve. Today we have Pamela Weidman. Pamela is the Director of Housing and Neighborhood Services for the city of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome to the program, Pamela. Thank you, Nigel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you on and learn about Charlotte and about you and the work you all are doing there in the Department of Housing and Neighborhood Services and all the initiatives that are going on. So excited to have you on today. So the first thing we usually do to kick it off um, is, is learn about you a little bit, kind of contextualize your background. So if you want to provide kind of a quick overview of how you found yourself into public service and your background and, and how you got to be where you are today? Sure. So I am uh, from a small community in South Carolina, Anderson, South Carolina. I actually grew up with parents who were in the service industry. My dad was a bus driver and my mom was a housekeeper at the local hospital there. And so, you know, throughout my life, I saw them working in the service industry. I saw them personally. Our home was was kind of the house where you could come to, to kind of get your needs met. And so I grew up knowing that I wanted to help people follow in their footsteps. And I didn't quite know how that would manifest itself, but I matriculated to Charlotte, North Carolina after graduating from high school and kind of just made Charlotte home. Um, as a result of a summer intern um, while in college, I found myself an intern with, um, at the time it was Mecklenburg County. And so that was kind of my first entry into this public sector professional. 
Uh, it grew on me. I, I loved um, serving my community. I loved serving people and decided that I would just stay in that profession, work my way up through the county government at that time. And then I'm very competitive by nature. So I figured if I'm going to be in the service industry or in this public sector industry, I wanted to get the, the highest degree I could. And so I went to UNC Charlotte and I got a master of public administration degree while working. I transitioned to the city of Charlotte. I thought at the time I wanted to be a city or a county manager, but I had an opportunity to work in what was at the time called the city's neighborhood development department. And that was really directly serving the community. So I did a couple of more stints in other departments, but found my way back into what was called neighborhood development and work my way up through that department. And today I have the privilege of serving as the director of that department. And so that's a little bit about kind of where I came from personally, how I got to Charlotte, North Carolina, um, and how I got to the city of Charlotte and serving in my current role as director of what's now called the city's housing and neighborhood services department. Great. I love that. It comes all the way from from your parents and young age and knowing you wanted to serve. That's that's the public service bug. I, I feel that. I love those stories of how people come into come into being with doing this great work. Definitely a call. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I feel like part of this podcast sometimes is just an appreciation for all the work that our public servants and officials do and like learning about how hard they work to bring services to our communities. And it's just, those stories are great. So then we take we take you and your leadership role in housing and neighborhood services and all your experience there and ask you to contextualize that into Charlotte. Kind of a, a socioeconomic history and like the economics of the region. You know, are there academic institutions? Are there major corporate institutions? Or, you know, what's, what's kind of the setup of the economy and the people in Charlotte? And sure. to give context for that, for the listeners of your role within that setup. So, you know, as I said, I came to Charlotte straight out of high school and started my undergraduate career. That was in 1988. I didn't think I would be in Charlotte that long, but I share this night to say that Charlotte kind of grew on me, right? And so Charlotte's got a, a lot to offer. And there's a tagline that says Charlotte's got a lot. And that's really true. From a socioeconomic perspective, Charlotte is 309 square miles. It's the 15th largest city in the U.S. based on population second largest city in the southeastern U.S., the, and this might be a little outdated, but you know, 120 people move here each day. So again, Charlotte's got a lot. You experience four seasons here. It's home to, I think, over 400 global and North American headquarters. It's home to the Charlotte Hornets, the Charlotte Panthers. There's a newly announced major soccer league we have the Charlotte Knights, minor league baseball, 30 breweries. We may have more at this point, 90 miles of Greenway trails. We've got several theater venues and art and history museums. So again, Charlotte's got a lot. That's not to say we don't have our challenges as well, but Charlotte has a lot to offer. Yeah. It sounds like an amazing place to live, work, play, right? Like that's the, the knowledge economy. We vote with our feet, right? Like where do people end up, especially during COVID? I feel like there's the great reshuffling or something, right? And right. so like I'm curious, we maybe we can talk about that a little bit, but but it maybe maybe a little history too. Like 
How have things changed over, like, say, in the last 50 years? Has there been quite a bit of change in Charlotte? I know across the Midwest, we've seen significant economic shift as e-commerce has come into play and the manufacturing industries have changed. And so I'm curious, like, just that quick, maybe like one minute on just like a big overview of some shifts, if there's been any or that that kind of a thing. That's always helpful. Yeah, so I won't profess to be a history buff at, at all, Nigel, but, you know, since I've been here in since 1988, about 30 years, Charlotte's changed. When I came to Johnson C. Smith University, one of the country's well-known historically Black universities, the Uptown or Center City, as we call it today, it opened at nine o'clock on Monday morning and it closed at five o'clock on Friday, right? So if you lived in the Center City at that time, you were poor or destitute. You didn't have you, you didn't have the, the housing that we see down there now. You didn't have the plethora of restaurants that you see down there now. Um, Bank of America and Wells Fargo and Fifth Third and Truist and the NFL stadium are, are there. Um, the the, <laughs> the Charlotte Knights baseball stadium is there. And so Charlotte's changed a lot. Charlotte's grown, obviously. You know, one of the things that keeps me busy is how do you manage the growth, particularly in terms of gentrification and making sure that people are not continue to be involuntarily forced out of their home. So Sticking within your one minute, Charlotte, Charlotte's grown that's a lot. Great. And from a city perspective, we try to manage that growth. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's what I'm hoping that we can dive into a little bit is because I'm sure that that level of growth and the historical challenges you've had as a city, there's got to be kind of like the crux meeting of those things and like how the programs and implementation to manage that kind of growth juxtapose with housing affordability issues and things like that. Like that's really exciting place for innovation and for if there's successful programming that you're doing like we want to bring that to the to the fore and talk through those things so maybe we can dive in a little bit to the institutional framework of housing and neighborhood services departments current priorities how you institutionally organize the department your staff partners the institutional world of your department that you had Sure. So like I said, again, I'm very, I'm, I have the pleasure of serving as the director of the Housing and Neighborhood Services Department. And there's a little bit of history there that I don't want to overlook. First woman to serve in that role in, in the city of Charlotte and first African-American female to serve really? in that role. So I'm really, really proud of, of that and grateful for the opportunity. In terms of how my department is organized, Nigel, I, I tell people we have five lines of business. Obviously, we have our affordable housing division. We have our code enforcement division. In that division, we enforce the housing code and the residential code to make sure that we ensure the health and cleanliness of of our neighborhoods and the safety of our our housing and our non-residential structures. We have our community engagement division, and that is all about how do we engage with our community? How do we offer programs, no matter whether you're in an affluent neighborhood or less affluent neighborhood? We have our Office of Immigration and Integration. We have a lot of immigrants that are matriculating to Charlotte, and we're grateful. We want to make sure that they can matriculate well and that they feel welcome in our city. And then we have our 311 call center, and that is often the first point of contact for many newcomers to the city of Charlotte. And so what I like to tell people is no two days are ever the same. We are all things neighborhoods in in my department. And so we have oversight of about 200 
employees. You talked a little bit about who are our key public sector and private sector partners, um, and they are many. We have everybody from Bank of America, who's been a long-term partner with us through a program. It's called our Mayor's Youth Employment Program, and that's a program where we try to help youth from our community who are in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system get access to summer employment. Bank of America, they are also a, a great partner in the affordable housing space. We have LISC, um, Local Initiative Support Community. They're a great partner in the affordable housing space as well. And then we have our development community. I like to tell people or remind people, we don't build any new housing. We simply have local and federal funding that we use in partnership with the development community as gap financing to help expand our affordable housing supply. So that's kind of who we are. Yeah, yeah, I love it. That's a nice reach. And so do you want to talk about kind of the some of the overarching priorities and kind of mission goal type things that are happening with the department? Yeah, so I, I would say our overall mission, if you will, is to create vibrant and diverse communities. We don't want to prescribe that all communities have to be the same or should be the same, but no matter what the socioeconomics of the communities are or the neighborhoods are, we want them to be vibrant. We want to help them to be vibrant and we want to ensure that there are opportunities for diversity there. So that's kind of our overall mission. Again, how do we do that work? We do it by helping expand the affordable housing options ensuring the health and safety of our neighborhoods and making sure that people have opportunities to engage with each other. Absolutely. And then an overlay, obviously, that we've been in for the last couple of years is COVID-19 and and that's affected everything across governance and people, economy, all the things. Has that changed programming or impacted your world? And, and if so, how's, how has that impacted your department and yeah, it, it certainly impacted our world, Nigel, and, and, and that's kind of trickled down to our department. Obviously, like many growing cities throughout the country, we had an affordable housing issue pre-COVID, right? COVID only exacerbated the housing affordability issue, not only in Charlotte, but throughout the country. Charlotte's been very fortunate like many other cities, we received, you know, CARES Act dollars. We've been the recipient of emergency rental assistance several times throughout the pandemic. And with that money, our goal, our council's goal was always how do we keep people in their housing, right? How do we keep people housed during the pandemic? And one of the ways we've, we've been able to do that is through dispersing that rental relief. I know there's all, there's many stories about how cities have gotten the money, but they haven't figured out the, a way to spend it quickly. That's not been our dilemma in Charlotte. So to date, we've spent over $36 million in rental relief and to the tune of providing assistance to over 12,000 households. Again, and this is about helping people stay in place. Also, during the pandemic, we never stopped working. Just th- this coming Monday night, council will have the opportunity to approve 879 more units of affordable housing. So that would be adding to our existing supply. And so that's really exciting. If I pivot from a housing and and a rental relief space, the other things that we've done, um, you might call them minor, but they were really major, is that we have helped 
a neighborhood stay connected. So with some of our earlier federal dollars, we were able to help neighborhoods who were not able to meet in person because of COVID be able to meet through helping them with Zoom licenses so that they could still have their neighborhood meetings, but do it safely and do it in a virtual environment. So that's just a, a little bit about some of the strategies we've used to respond to the effects of the pandemic. Some of the innovative things that have come out of that have been really interesting as I've you know, run the podcast and communicated with different leaders across cities across the country. And something that I've found is when those resources are flush into an environment and you have the flexibility to build programming to more easily deliver resources that are critical and needed into your community, some innovations can come. I'm curious if there's learnings that have happened for programming or types of programming that are going to stick around beyond the pandemic. Some like ahas that happened during all this resource flow and community connectivity that was required during the pandemic. Is there anything that comes to top of mind for you that is like, that's a learn, yeah. learned, right? Yeah, that, that, that's great. I'm glad you, you went back to that. So for example, I talked about neighborhoods being able to meet in a virtual space rather than, you know, you have to pick up the kid, you have to get home and cook dinner, and then you have to get over to the neighborhood meeting, right? So we will very likely, in, in many neighborhoods, will very likely continue to offer a virtual meeting space. And so that's, that's one of those things that we believe will stick around after the pandemic. The other thing that I didn't allude to earlier was, you know, one of the learnings or innovations that came as a result of the pandemic is prior to the pandemic, we've had a mayor's youth employment program for over 30 years, right? And so that program is, is where high school students throughout the school year, they work with guidance counselors in their schools. It's a partnership between us and, and Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. They get some soft skills. They get to figure out a career path that they're interested in. And then during the summer, Bank of America, again, is a great partner in this. They are offered an internship, a paid internship for eight weeks during the summer. Many of those students, as a result of those internships, they go on to obtain full-time employment from those employers. Well, in a COVID environment, that was a little hard to do, right? Because many of the, the businesses and the companies that we work with, their, their employees were working from home. So what we were able to do is still continue that program, still continue that opportunity, but we were able to do that in a virtual space. So we all had to learn how to work in a, in a virtual space. And so we provided a paid opportunity for students who were scheduled for an, a face-to-face -face internship to still be able to get that, have that internship experience, but just in a virtual environment, whether that were with a company or whether that were brushing up on their skills through LinkedIn, right? How do I show up in a virtual environment? How do I enhance my resume? And so that's that's an innovation that came it. as a result of COVID. And so we may will likely continue some virtual opportunity through our Mayor's Youth Employment Program. I love it. See, that's the stuff. It's been a very difficult and tragic time with COVID-19, but we've come out with learnings and like opportunities and silver linings that for public programming that I feel really, really good about. The more that I hear about it, like the way that resources are getting delivered to folks that need them, you know, at the local level, it's exciting to hear about. And thank you for that. You gave me the statistic of 120 new people moving in to Charlotte every day, probably an averaged number based on growth, right? Something like sure. that. 
Sure. What I'm hearing, so I'm, an, I'm a housing economist, right, by training. And so what I hear is like housing demand, you have a large city, but you have increasing housing demand every day, right? And sure. you, have, you have folks that need to have training. You have kids that are coming up. And that's what I just heard is I heard kids that are getting, finding their way into potential jobs in the future, like directly out of high school and into that space. And so in, in fast growing communities, I've, this podcast is neat because I get to start learning from the different cities. Like in Phoenix, they were tying directly to the community colleges to fast track workforce development for because their business community was growing so fast, right? Mm-hmm. And if you have that kind of growth and you have and, and workforce development, so what just triggered was like, I'm curious. And I mean, you're in housing, you're, you're, you're in housing and neighborhoods. And so, I mean, that's, that's probably in the economic development realm, but I'm, I'm just curious, like given the housing demand is a component of that, like, is that, is that a thing that you work with maybe economic development or workforce development on at all in Charlotte? Yeah. So Nigel, you're right that that would be in the realm of economic development. However, you know, our economic development and our housing department, we we partner and, and we we collaborate often. What I always mm-hmm. say to to my city council is, you know, my work is a, is, is largely around housing affordability. Right. Um, yes. I fundamentally believe that 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 all people deserve a safe decent, affordable place to live. And I know affordable means something different to everybody. But one yeah. of the things I stress to um, the city council and to, to audiences that I'm talking with is housing is not the silver bullet, right? Housing is intrinsically linked to good paying jobs. It's intrinsically linked to a good education. And so what I often like to remind people is, is that you know, once a person is able to obtain housing, it is important that they are able to not only obtain it, but to sustain it through a good paying job. So housing demand, you talked about, it, it is a thing, right? And so, you know, like many growing cities, we have a very limited supply. We currently have people, you know, able to make cash offers, which when you're talking about trying to, to find an affordable housing opportunity for many because of some of the red tape, I'll call it, or the programmatic things that they have to do, they're often outbid or they they often have to work harder on finding an affordable house. So yes. workforce development is certainly a thing. It's certainly something that should be focused on as intentionally as housing affordability. Right. So let's dive into the housing initiatives that you're focused on. Can you tell us a bit about the Housing Charlotte framework? Absolutely. So our framework, if I step back a few years, due to, again, Charlotte is known for kind of public and private sector collaboration. Due to the collaboration of public sector and private sector, there was some work done over about 18 months. It was called a Leading on Opportunity Study. Out of that study came as a, a finding that, um, and not a typical audit finding, but a recommendation that Charlotte, because of it, the city's growth, the city's need to expand the affordable housing supply, that we go from a $15 million every other year housing bond. This is The housing bond is coupled with the, the neighborhood bonds and the transit bonds. It's a general obligation bond. It's where voters go to the polls 
to the ballot every other year and they vote on these bonds up or down. But the finding that came out of that is we need to go from a $15 million a year affordable housing bond to a $50 million of housing trust fund wow. bond. You said you're an economist, so you understand that $15 million every other year doesn't get you many affordable housing developments. So we needed to go from 15 to, to, to $50 million. And so voters have since that time, beginning in 2018, they've overwhelmingly approved the $50 million. Private sector came along that first time and they matched it with 50. So we had 100 over the past couple of years, we've had 150 million to work with in terms of expanding our housing supply. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So the framework, the beauty of the framework is when we first started is we needed to be able to say to the, the residents and the voters, how we're going to spend that money, right? We needed to ensure them that there was a plan that was going to guide the spending of of that money. And so the plan, the framework is built on some core considerations. Those include, you know, increasing the capacity to serve low-income households with a focus on households who earn 60% or below the area median income. That's a focus, but eligibility is up to 80% of the area median income. One of the other core considerations was about serving households who were vulnerable to displacement. And that goes back. A lot of our neighborhoods are gentrifying. Using those investments to build and expand access to opportunity. Right. So that means, you know, where where we can uh, focusing on areas in Charlotte that are high opportunity. Right. So locating the affordable housing in areas of high opportunity. High opportunity is like access to parks, access to good schools, access to jobs, access to transit. And then also with an emphasis on just noting that our community partners are critical. We can't do this by ourselves. So those are kind of the core considerations. What I would say is just simplistically, the framework is built on three objectives. It's expanding the supply, so that's new construction. It's preserving Mm -hmm. the existing supply and it's about supporting family self-sufficiency, which comes primarily through home ownership opportunities, right? And yeah. so those are the, the the core considerations, and then the three pillars, as I like to call it, of the framework. I love it. I love it. And and it sounds like it's well financed. It sounds like you have your citizen base that are voting yes to their part with it. Is it through millage? Is it through property tax that they pay they pay in to finance the the 50 million a year, is that right? Correct. And, and what I would say, Nigel, is that although it is, it's a part of the property taxes, our property taxes have not, at least the past, I think it's the past several budget cycles, I won't quote a number, we've not had a property tax increase from a city perspective. So it's kind of like we're getting the, you know, our government is really well managed. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fantastic. And then you have corporate partners who are rounding that out Sounds like even matching that, that investment from the community, you have your community investing, you have your, your corporate and business community investing, and you get resources to build out supply towards those who need it most, as well as supply in general, right? In an attempt to secure affordable housing. Is that, I mean, is that right? Right. In a nutshell, you're right. I mean, you've got your public (laughs) sector investment. You've got your private sector investment. So yeah, and and our goal is to serve those households who earn 80% and below Charlotte's area median income. So yeah, you you got it. And then how's it going? Like how are the deals going? Do you can you give like an example deal that like went really well in terms of it checked all the boxes like high opportunity zone meaning, 
you know, the affordable housing got filled and folks had access to the, the bus stops and like the, the grocery stores and like all the boxes got checked and the developers happy because they got their market rate and they're affordable. And like an example of like when all of the things come together, I imagine you have some of those given that you have, yeah. you know, I want to say all, all of our deals, if you know, check those boxes and they check those boxes it's by awesome. design yeah. because we set up that framework and that's kind of what, what our promise is to the city council. So the, the way it works though, if I could just give a brief synopsis is a lot of work. I have a great team who helps get this work done and is dedicated day in and day out. But in short, we release in partnership with our with our partner, I mentioned LISC earlier, we mm-hmm. release, we refer to it as a joint request for proposals. And we do that twice per year. We do it early in January so that developers can take advantage of, and you'll be familiar with this, our 9% tax credit um, or the state's 9% tax credit program that's done once a year. And so our funding is gap financing, right? So we release an RFP. Within that RFP, it's outlined, you know, the submission deadline and all the other things that, that they need to do. In that RFP, developers have to host two community meetings within that timeline to inform the property owners what's going to go on a, a, around them. I don't, I don't want to go too far in the, in the details. Of course, again, you'll get this because you're an economist. Market studies are done. And these are third-party market studies that are done. And a, the, the big thing about that market study is the state finance agency and the local government, we don't want to be investing money in a, in a development where there is no market demand. And so those market demands um, most all the time come back, you know, the need is there. So, so that's pretty much a no brainer. My team in partnership with LISC, we review the RFPs and what we're looking for is in terms of our evaluation criteria, it's, it's spelled out in the, in the request for proposal, but we want to make sure that the proposed development meets the city's policies, things at mm-hmm. like the number of years, the affordability period. We generally like to go for 30 years or more in terms of an affordability period. Um, mm-hmm. We want to make sure that it's supporting our neighborhood revitalization efforts. We look yeah. at the strength of the development, like how many units are they proposing to be affordable? Who are they serving? Making sure they're serving that 80% or less of the area median income. And just to put that in context, in Charlotte, that's $66,800 for a family of four. So that's who we're trying to provide housing for. We obviously look at the developer experience. We want to make sure that they have a track record of doing this, that they have good property management. We look at the financial strength of the proposal. How are they leveraging city funds? What's the city investment per unit? I talked about the market study review. That's very important. We ensure that the community engagement has been done. And then we have for some of our our developments, and this is typically where the city is investing two million or more for gap financing. We really want to look at what's the proximity to, to retail and other amenities. What is the access, right? Is there access to jobs? Is that neighborhood changing? And what the makeup of that neighborhood looks like? So in short, those are kind of our seven big pillars of of evaluation. That's what we're looking at. 
We also look at some things that's really important is, you know, what's the sustainability and green building energy efficiency requirements, right? And this is really important, not only on the new, but when we're preserving existing, like our upgrades being made to ensure sustainability and, and energy efficiency. So I, I could talk about this a long time. No, this is like, so I have a few questions that have come out of this just because it's, to me, this is the excitement, like the deals that are getting done and the growth of the housing stock. Given that you have a growing growing economy, and how do you how do you check the boxes to assure that the folks that need housing the most are getting good housing and access to housing and these things? And it sounds like you're using the the times that you will gap finance stronger, like put more resources in, is when they check more of the boxes in terms of accessibility and. So it sounds like there's some strategic evaluation of deals that take data into consideration. And so I get, I'm really curious about the data that you all use based on the, the location of a deal and like what are the, what are the key data points that'll, that'll compel your team, you and your team to say, yes, this is, this is worth it. This is, this is a game changer development that's going to help our targeted groups. Yeah. So, so, so I'll, I'll talk real high criteria, um, Nigel, and we can yeah. drill down as, as you need to. We know that if, if a developer is partnering with the state finance agency, in our case, it's the North Carolina Housing Finance Agency, if they're partnering with them on a 9% proposal, right, we know that there are some pretty specific things already spelled out in the QAP qualified allocation plan. It's kind of like the developer's Bible where they have to check all the box, right? So we know that there's some pretty specific things spelled out there about where they can locate, where they can't locate. We also know that that tool brings the largest source of kind of gap financing to that deal. We also know that in many cities, there's not enough of this to go around. So that tool is very competitive. So we kind of just based on all of those specifications, we follow the guidelines of the state finance agency on those particular deals. But in terms of if they are applying for a 4% deal, still with the finance agency, bringing less gap financing or equity to the deal, this is where we begin to put a little more specification because it requires a larger city investment. So a little more of a finer lens, if you will, on the on the data. So we look at proximity, how proximate is the proposed site to transit options and, mm-hmm. and other other amenities. We look at income diversity. To what extent does the development contribute to creating a vibrant mixed income community? Right. And so when I talk about mixed income community, not solely from a, a racial mix, but also from an economic mix, right? So are you really creating a mixed income community by making this investment? When we talk about access, that's a measure of jobs. Are jobs easily mm-hmm. accessed from the development site? Not necessarily by transit, but you know, by car, by walkability. And then we look at change. What's the level of dispute? Displacement risk indicated by the real estate market activity in historically lower income neighborhoods, right? So if we see a, a neighborhood, historically low, lower income neighborhood, and we have many examples of this in Charlotte, that people are being displaced due to the development of new homes, we're going to use that data and we're going to be eager to put some affordability, some new high quality or preserve yeah. some affordability so people can remain in place. So those, those are just a few of the data elements that we look at when we're making these decisions. 
So are there, you have a measurement that you, you have that gives like, it's almost like a gentrification risk factor is what you just kind of explained to me, it sounds like. And I'm really curious what data points you use to indicate that to your team or to the, a, a potential investment. Yeah, so it's a couple, Nigel. You know, we look at everything from American community survey data. So that's through the census, but that's more of a kind of a one-year assessment. We look at real data. And so that's real estate development to look at what other multifamily developments are, are renting for in a particular area. We work with our colleagues in our planning department to really understand what rezonings have been either approved or submitted. So to really understand what's going on from a land development perspective. And then, you know, a part of our work too, is just recognizing what's going on on the ground real time. So really understanding on a day to day, what's going on with the neighborhoods. So those are kind of four different levels of of data that we, we use, we're using to make our decisions. Do you have analysts on your team that are like pulling together these reports and aggregating this data or is it a technology that helps do that like how i'm curious about the like the how yep so i this might be another podcast (laughs) nigel so (laughs) again i I am very fortunate to work with a a very talented team and i don't mean just in the housing and neighborhood services department but we have a very talented information and technology group within the city and so they help us with these analysis got it And so you've worked with that team to kind of curate like the reports associated with your developments so that you can kind of have your snapshot view of like this to scope a deal in the context of, of all the things to be considered. Is that right? That's right. And again, you know, we do this in the context of what we call our locational scoring tool. Right. And so again, we want to take advantage of all of the 9% opportunities that come through the housing finance agency, because again, that tool brings the most equity to a deal. We know that senior and special needs developments, those are kind of exempt from the scoring criteria because that's, I mean, all affordable housing is needed, but but seniors and special needs, special needs development, you don't hear a lot of the NIMBY, right? The not in my backyard. We don't use this tool um, for, for multifamily developments that are fewer than 24 units. Um, you don't really hear a lot of NIMBY from those types of developments. This doesn't apply to single family affordable housing developments because we know home ownership is still one of the very key ways that people cre- create wealth. And we don't mm-hmm. use this tool, these these data tools, these particular data tools. There's some other criteria we use, but not these particular data tools when we're preserving naturally occurring affordable housing, because that's a whole nother realm, right? That's already yes. on the ground. That product is on the ground. What we're working toward then in that case is really trying to preserve it so that people can remain in place. Right, right. It's different programming. I get it. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. I've been working in the private sector my whole career, like trying to deliver decision support tools to folks like you that have really tough choices and like indices and indexes are like quick tools that can be really helpful. And so I'm, I'm just really curious about this. Like, it's exciting. You guys have one, you have a tool you use. It sounds like, what did you call it? The locational something index? We call it our affordable housing locational scoring guidelines. And we put an emphasis on guidelines, right? Because we're trying to do this in a data driven way. Yet we're also trying to 
um, defeat the NIMBYs, right? So the people yep. who say, you know, affordable housing is bad. People who live in affordable housing is bad. No. So we're, we're trying to yep. do it in a balanced way where we're strategic with our investments, but that we are also working really hard to expand um, the supply of high quality, affordable housing. Again, back to that fundamental belief, everybody deserves a safe, decent place to call that's home. Right. Yeah. And that's what you, I heard that loud and clear is that it sounds like your team and you have put thought into like delivering a scoring mechanism that, that has the most equitable outcome in mind. Can you speak to that a bit? Like how social equity opportunity for all kind of builds into your housing plans, like how that works? Sure. So you heard me earlier mention areas of high opportunity, right? There is this misnomer that if a person needs affordable housing, that they may not be as smart as the next person, right? And so this is children mm. in school or or these kids or who live in the affordable housing are going to make my school bad, right? There are bad apples in every bunch, but um, you can't just say if a child lives in affordable housing, they're going to be a, a, they're not a smart kid, right? So in terms of social equity and how we try to balance is we work really hard. We have not, I will say, uh, perfected this by any stretch of the imagination for a lot of reasons. But what we're trying to do is while we're expanding the supply of affordable housing, we're really trying to be strategic about where that's located and located in areas of high opportunity. If you think about, then this becomes a problem for particularly lower income households. If you are spending more than 30% of your annual earnings for your housing, you have little to no earnings to go toward things like transportation to your medical needs and then extracurricular activities, right? So one of the the ways that we try to attack or address affordable housing from a socioeconomic perspective is by placing it in areas of high opportunity, areas where there's access to transit, areas where there's access to jobs, and good schools so that you can either walk, you can either take public transportation, or you don't have to drive as far to access those amenities. Another way, so I mentioned creating mixed income communities, right? Their social capital is real, right? So if you can live Mm -hmm. in close proximity to somebody who may be to earn more, you get exposure. And so you learn different things. And so those are kind of two ways that we're trying to address increase affordable housing through a socioeconomic lens. Yes. And this is what gets me very excited is, is that I, I would love to dive in further even yet, if you're willing, on specific metrics within that whole environment and how you build reporting and communication tools that help implement those considerations in decision making. I'd love to talk to you more about it sometime, (laughs) but I will just keep diving deeper right now. And I want to ask you one more thing because we're up against time. I want to give you a chance to just real quickly speak to the the 2025 Charlotte Mecklenburg housing and homelessness strategy. Yeah, so I can do that in a minute or so because it's new. And so it's a big work in process. But the idea is to bring the community together to shape a Charlotte Mecklenburg housing and homeless strategy. Um, and this strategy would, would be implemented over the next five years, right? And so mm-hmm. again, this is a new body of work from the perspective of, of looking at this 2025 strategy. 
certainly not a new body of work for the city's efforts around affordable housing and homelessness, and certainly not a new body of work for the for Mecklenburg County around their efforts around homelessness. So in Charlotte, it's historically been the county's been the lead role, the lead agency, um, just because the counties are generally about health and human needs, right? And so the mm-hmm. county has been um, carrying out the homeless work. City supports that through the work from our capital, from our housing trust fund that we've talked about, you know, by um, contributing funding towards shelters, contributing funding toward the construction or rehab of shelters, the construction or of new permanent supportive housing, which houses chronically homeless population. So really what this body of work is, how do you bring the city, the county, the public sector, the private sector together to really design a strategy that will tackle housing and homelessness? So that's a really quick kind of one minute or less what that strategy is about. I think more to come for you yeah. all and for all of us as as we continue to to walk down this path and figure out what that strategy is for Charlotte Mecklenburg. That's definitely exciting ground that maybe we could cover sometime sometime in the future. Come back on and talk about how things are going with your regional strategy and the implementation of these plans. Like um, just really exciting work. Really appreciate it. You're doing great work. I appreciate all of this. I, I'm really excited about your data tools, and I want to talk to you more about that as well. The way that I usually finish out, um, just because we're up against it, is uh, I want to offer you an opportunity to, you know, working uh, in the public sector all these years that you have, there's kind of a, a single insight or best practice or something like that that you've you've taken that you'd love like to share with with your peers since we have a we have an audience here. It's, it's an opportunity to, to give, drop some of your personal insight into your community. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would say a couple of things. I said earlier, it's a call. I do believe this is how I, I live out my call. I, I firmly believe that, you know, public service is the rent we pay for, for living on this earth. I mm. think that I will never be rich, but I will be wealthy for the work that I get to do. I am wealthy for the work that I get to do in my community and with my community. Affordable housing, I think if any city is going to be successful with expanding the supply of affordable housing, I believe you need at least three things, a minimum of three things. I think you have to have the political will. I think you have to have the right regulatory environment. And I think you have to have financing. It will never be easy, but with those three key ingredients as a minimum, I think cities across the country can move the needle on this. And I'm always happy to share more about how Charlotte Charlotte is doing in this area. Thank you so much for joining today, Pam. And it's been it's been a real pleasure talking to you and learning about all the exciting work that that you all are doing in in Charlotte. And um, look forward to staying in touch. Thank you, Nigel. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ahead of the Curve. And special thanks to Pamela for joining us today.